Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. It is wonderful to have with us Professor Jonathan Bendov, who is the professor of Bible at Tel Aviv University, is co-editor with Seth Sanders of the book, Ancient Jewish Sciences and the History of Knowledge in Second Temple Literature, and also familiar to us from his articles on the Torah.com as well as elsewhere too. And it's wonderful to have Professor Bendov with us to explore Ha'azinu. Of course, the penultimate parasha has arrived. Thank you for having me. Wonderful that you're here. So maybe turning to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, where we read, you have been shown to know that the Lord is God. There is no God beside him, as we read there. How different maybe is that line that we obviously encountered now a few weeks ago from many others in the Hebrew Bible, where God is indeed surrounded by a whole entourage of more minor divine beings. And maybe we could take that as a start and then look forward to jumping into Hazi. So, in fact, throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout the Torah, but let's say throughout the Hebrew Bible, there are actually two trends that are competing, and they're actually, there's a dialectic between them. I think Deuteronomy, like the heart, the core of Deuteronomy is really the extreme marker speaking about one supreme single deity. However, you do find elsewhere in the Bible and even within Sefer Devarim, Deuteronomy itself, you also hear other voices. For example, in the very same chapter four of Sefer Devarim, where it says, uh, verses 19 and 20, If you look up to the sky, you will see the host of heaven and the stars. So you should know that the stars were divided. That means God, the supreme God, has given the stars to the nations for worshipping. That means even the stars or the other deities, the stars functioning as all sorts of other minor deities, they are not just null. They are there. They are deities. They have been assigned by the Supreme God to other nations to be worshipped, but they are not voids. So there are actually several voices about this question, even within Deuteronomy. Understood. And maybe you might unpack some of the benefits of this notion of the divine assembly theology that you've pointed to. Thank you, Simon. There are several places in the Tanakh that promote this ideology or theology of a divine assembly. Most of them are poetic sections. It's really a theme of poetry, not so much of prose. Maybe there is something of the genre to it. Prose might be more earthly 
and more rational, you could say. There are those sections in the songs, Song 89, for example, Peitet, songs that begin with the praise of God. And the main thing that they praise in that song is really the way God presides. So that is Elohei Israel, the God of Israel, the way God presides over the divine assembly. And they are all worshiping him and so on. And you get that even in Deuteronomy, we may have a chance to speak about it in Hazino. So for many people in the biblical period and much later through Jewish history and until today, it's actually an established fact that God is not alone. I'm not speaking in the terms of Joshua Heschel, man is not alone. Actually speaking about God is not alone. God is not alone in the sense that there is a family in a way, maybe not a family, but there is an entourage around. Actually, it's, religion is much more interesting this way. If you have only one supreme transcendent God, this is good for philosophers and for people whose faith is very abstract. But many people, normative people, they want some drama in the divine realm. And the divine entourage supplies that. Now, I'd like to say another, I don't know you very well, Simon, but I assume that like me, you grew up basically with Maimonides in mind, with the Rambam in mind. So all of us grew with the Rambam in mind. I'm allowed to jump to that assumption and that's not a bad, that's not a bad assumption, I assure you. Okay. I agree. Anyway, and most of us Western Jews, this way or another, in Israel too, most of us grew with Maimonides in mind, even if we don't know that we did, that's the fact. And we know, and we were raised with the notion that there's one God and he's supreme and transcendent. And this belief in ghosts and demons and angels and other gods and so on, this is just, this is popular culture. This is not really Judaism. Some people would really say it out loud, would explicitly say, People who believe in demons are not Jewish. This is Avodazara. And I think this is a completely and entirely wrong perspective. Because as a historical fact, throughout the history of Judaism, from the biblical period, Second Temple, Talmudic times, medieval times, and until this very day, it seems to me that most Jews, as a fact, believe in the drama of the divine much more than in the one transcendent philosophical God of Maimonides. It is quite extraordinary how, even though the evidence is there right throughout the gamut of Jewish literature, that we have all been rather straitjacketed by Maimonides and thinking around that time. There are several scholars of medieval Jewish thought. Actually, we came to speak about the Bible, but it's important to say something also about medieval times in this respect. So quite a few people, academics, developed the idea that actually the Maimonides is the exception, it's not the rule. And if you look historically speaking, what is the reaction to Maimonides Morenevuchim? The reaction is Kabbalah. And if you look at Kabbalah, Kabbalah is all about the divine entourage, except that they don't call the figures of the divine entourage, they don't call them gods, they call them sefirot. 
but it's all about the drama that takes place in the divine realm. It's a different way of casting the same notion of drama and interaction within the divine realm. Thank you for expanding on that perhaps very interesting reaction to Maimonides. Maybe now jumping back to Hazinu, and in fact, the two songs that we encounter in both chapters 32 and then 33 of Devarim, what do you see as different in these songs then from the prose sections of much of Deuteronomy? So for Bible scholars, we always see their origins and the sources and where it comes from and the different type of literary genre and the set, setting in life for each of the sections. It's a serious question whether you could expect different ideas to be expressed in poetry than those that are expressed in prose. And when they do, the question is really, and some people really, can, can you imagine that some serious scholars really ask the question, does the poet really mean what he intends to say? That is, for example, if you read poetry like as where it speaks quite, I think, quite explicitly about other minor divine beings. So some like serious scholars, like the famous revered Moshe David Kasuto would say that the poets of the Hebrew Bible sometimes allowed themselves to use all kinds of poetry, poetical phrases about minor divinities as ornamentation. They didn't really mean what they really meant is the prose of Deuteronomy. But the, uh, that's what the Kasuta would say. So when they wrote poetry, they would speak about all sorts of things as kind of poetic playfulness. But you don't really need to believe it. This is what Kasuta would say. Now, the fact is that um, there are two poems that are quoted in Deuteronomy. Uh, chapter 33, Parashat Vezot Abracha, really has some very ancient sources in it, like very early, early Israelite, early first millennium BCE, something around 1000 BCE, something like that. This is Vezot Abracha. I think the beginning and the end are very ancient. Chapter 32, Parashat Azinu, the song, the Shira of Parashat Azinu, is really, I would say, from the time of Sefer Devarim, but it is not necessarily echoing the same message of Sefer Devarim. It is embedded within Sefer Devarim, and it plays a role in the literary design of Deuteronomy, but it does not necessarily produce the exact same message that the prose sections of the book. Thank you. And maybe then jumping specifically into Hazinu, what do you see as the kind of meta-narrative that we find there? That's, I'm happy you asked that question because many of us don't actually stop to read and to understand what is actually written there. The beginning of Azinu, well, Azinu is really a story of Am Israel. The beginning of Azinu is really an alternative version to the story that you find in Sefer Shmuel. Sefer Shmot is the book of Exodus, the prose book of Exodus, is really a story about the origins of Israel. Israel were slaves in Egypt, and then they then came the ten plagues, and then came the Yom Sinai, and so on. Azinu gives you a different version of that in poetic form. 
And it's actually quite common that you have in poetic form, you have a different message or a different story altogether. Look at the story of the 10 plagues in the Psalms. It's, it's quite different from what you find in Sefer Shmuel. So the beginning of Israel is like that. When the God of Israel received that nation to be his own inheritance, he was a very minor God. There were many gods and there were many nations and each God received the nation. Some gods received large, famous nations, but he, the God of Israel, was only a very minor deity at the stage. And he received a very minor nation to be his inheritance. And he's found that nation in the desert as a fledgling, as a deserted baby, very fitting to his own status at the time as a very minor God. The story of Azin is really a story how the God of Israel grew up and rose. It's really the story about the ascension of Hashem the way he ascended from a minor deserted god to the chief god of the pantheon, to the chief god. And at the same time, his nation grew from a very small and insignificant nation to a nation that all of the world recognizes as the leading nation of the world. And the last verse of, parasha, of the Shira, not the Parsha Tazino, but the last verse of the Shira says, Come all nations and sing his praise with his nation. That is, all other nations will acknowledge the sovereignty of the God of Israel. Since we spoke about the divine family, let me just say, it's written in the article in the Torah.com, but I'll just say it here in the podcast quite shortly, that there are various versions to this Shira in the versions of the Hebrew Bible. Most of us read in Hebrew the Masoretic text, but if you read it in the Greek, the old Greek translation, the Septuagint, which actually preserves a very old Jewish version of that poem, and the same, the old Jewish version of that poem is also preserved in scrolls from the Dead Sea, from Qumran. In that version, you will find that the drama is taking place not only in the earthly realm when Israel rises to sovereignty, but the drama takes place in the divine realm. And this divine drama is much more pronounced in this ancient Jewish version of Qumran and the Septuagint than in the Masoretic text. So actually we have reason to believe that you can say that the version that survived in the Masoretic text is in some way kind of tamed tamed because it was too wide to absorb. And therefore the version in the Masoretic text was tamed in order to tell us a story that we can adjust, that we can... Maybe then going back to that conversation that we started, there were many scholars who seemed to follow a, a path identifying the evolution of our notion of God as maybe starting with a kind of henotheism and then evolving to a kind of more abstract monotheism, the likes of which we encounter with Maimonides, which which then prevailed in, in post-biblical Judaism. But you see this, you do see this as wrong. And I wonder if you can maybe expand a little bit more as to why. 
Yes. As I told you, the two trends were dialectically present throughout Jewish history. They always exist, coexisted. There is one, the trend, the one, the more rational, philosophical, transcendent trend next to the trend that is more pluralistic, that speaks about plurality within the divine realm. I think it would be, it's just plainly wrong to say that there is a development from a more plural view of the divinity into a single God, because as a plain fact, whoever practices Kabbalah is in fact practicing the other end of the dichotomy and saying that there actually is a divine entourage and that there is drama within it. And if you read the Zohar, you will hear all sorts of things about sexual relations within, within the divinity and so on and so forth. So, what, for example, and what I wrote in my article there, is that when people from the Qumran community, when they read Parashat Azinu, for them, it was really a demonic story. It was a story about minor divinities, some of them benevolent, some of them malevolent. The same thing also with the beginning of Parashat Vezot Abracha. And it was really a proof text for the kind of magic and angelology that they practiced. Now, in some ways, of course, you can. some people would say this is really maltreating Deuteronomy because really Deuteronomy never meant to say that. And only, okay, so they carried that meaning that is hidden in Azino, they carried it to the extreme. But really, for these people in Quran, and many others like them, in that respect, they're really not, I think, exceptional in any way. They're not exceptional. But for these people, it's a clear fact that there is plurality within the Godhead, as Gershom Scholem used to say. There is plurality within. And to be honest, it's much more interesting. Life, a monotheistic God could be very boring. If you were raised like Maimonides in the Greek philosophical tradition, I guess you could live with it. But uh, if you want to explain the drama of the world, then speaking about divine plurality actually is a lot easier and it's much, much more convincing. I'm truly pleased that you no doubt have maybe shocked some of our listeners today and there's certainly plenty that we can dwell on whilst reading Hazinu this week and thank you so much thank you Simon let me just say that whoever wants first of all people would like to react that's absolutely fine but maybe it's better that they read the piece on the torah.com before before they do understood and thank you for pointing our audience there too Professor Bendov, thank you again, and we do look forward to you joining us again. If you like this podcast, then please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content that we have for you at jewishquest.org. We do look forward to meeting again next week for the final parasha of our tour through the whole of the Torah for this year for Vazot Abracha.